Uh, you know what I say when people ask me how many people go to your church? I get asked that a bunch by family and friends who aren't living in Tampa. Hey, man, how many people go to your church? You know what I tell them now? Not enough. Uh, that's a great way to deflect any of rankings of where they want to put us or whatever. But, but it's also true. Every church can answer that way. No matter if there's, uh, you know, 100,000 going to that church, there's still not enough. Why? Because not everybody in any community is, is, you know, worshiping Jesus at any one time. Lots of people need to know Jesus. That's why we do church every Sunday. That's why we do church on Easter. That's why you ask your friends. There's not enough people in our community who know and follow Jesus Christ. They need a chance to hear and respond to his gospel. And so that's why we ask them. That's why you're texting. I pray you see them say yes. Amen? All right. I'm going to pray right now then, towards that end, and we'll preach a little bit. Here we go. Hey, God, thanks so much for a chance to uh, celebrate the things that we got to celebrate today, for a Feed the Bay that was just awesome, uh, for the lives that have been changed uh, by faith in Jesus Christ, these, these roses here on the stage, by, uh, for the 28 people who are getting baptized this weekend, just lots to rejoice over here today. Uh, Lord, we're looking forward to a week where um, uh, we take some special time uh, out of our uh, daily experiences to, to focus on you uh, with the journey to the cross, to to invite our friends and see them come to Easter so that they can hear the gospel. Just make it a powerful week in our community, God, a powerful week here in our church as uh, uh, we take steps forward in understanding you and and revering you in our lives uh, through the things that we experience together. Uh, Help us to do that this morning as we open your word. I pray that every time we get together and uh, your your words are preached, your your scriptures are are taught, uh, that we would be engaged by your spirit, that that you'd get whoever's speaking to me this morning, get me out of the way. Uh, Push me aside so that you speak to the hearts and minds of men, women, and children in this room. And lead us to the changes you want us to make, God. We want to be more like you and less like we were. Uh, Help us with that. Uh, Challenge us in how we handle troubles this morning. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, uh, we're going to talk about some of the events that surround Good Friday this morning. Uh, maybe not the typical ones where we get into the, the later trials of that night where Jesus was wrongly convicted of uh, blasphemy and ultimately sentenced to his death. Uh, we're not going to talk about the cross this morning. We'll be covering a lot of that in the journey to the, to the cross itself. But uh, today I want to talk about choices that we make. And we're going to talk about the tale of two rocks here in just a little bit. But let's all agree on something. Can we agree on something? In life, you can make good moves and you can make bad moves. Sometimes there's like you know, innocuous moves, but, but when it comes down to push and shove, especially in trouble or trial situations, you can make good choices or bad choices. Now, you make good choices, good things usually happen. Not always, we can talk about that in some other sermon, but sometimes you make bad choices and almost always bad things happen. We don't believe in karma. Sometimes God blesses us even in our bad choices. Sometimes hard things happen even in our good choices. Can we all agree on that? But typically what happens is reap and sow. You sow good things, good things come. You sow bad things, and bad things come. This comes to light in all kinds of situations. I was playing a board game with my family uh, just uh, Friday night. Uh, we play this game called Aggravation. For those of you under 20, a board game is a game that's not on a screen. Uh, there's dice. I don't mean to slam everybody's under 20. But anyway, um, they, they aren't used a whole lot. It's kind of a relic. Uh, but we were playing this game called Aggravation. Anybody ever heard of Aggravation? Is play roll dice and you knock people's pieces off the board, it's whatever, it's aggravating. That's the name. Anyway, um, and it, it's a game that some people are good at and some people are getting better at, just like any game. Like, I remember when I learned how to play chess, I didn't know what I was doing. Does anybody, anybody know how to play chess? Was anybody taught the game by a friend who knew how to play chess better than you? When I was taught, I, I had a friend across the board who every time I would start to move a piece would go, eh. 
Because he knew at the minute I moved that piece, he was going to go, you know, queen six and b9, or I guess bingo. But anyway, uh, <laughs> but he was going to wipe me out. It was a bad move. And he would kind of make a little mm, so that I wouldn't do that. Same thing in aggravation, except in our house, <laughs> when, when people aren't good at aggravation, we let them make bad moves, and then we mock them after they've made it. Isn't that a fun thing to do with family members? You totally could have got me here. Ha <laughs> ha! Right? And then pray for the Saunders. But... Uh, Good moves, bad moves, they're a part of life. Jesus talks about good moves and bad moves a lot, in lots of different ways. One of my uh, f- more you know, favorite ways that he's discussed it in scripture is in the Sermon on the Mount. He, he gets done telling all these wise things to people in those three chapters in the book of Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And in chapter 7, he says, hey, everybody who heeds my words, you're like a wise man. Remember that part? Who builds his house upon the what? The rock. And he talks about how good moves lead to stable living. And he's, he's talking about good moves leading to stable living in the midst of storms. He says when the storms come and the waters rise up, uh, the trouble comes, that the house that's built on these things that I'm teaching you will stand firm. It's wise to follow me. It's a good move. Jesus says, on the other hand, a foolish man builds himself upon the sand. Uh, sand is kind of a uh, rock that's been worn down a bunch. Everybody knows that about sand, right? It's just little real granulated rocks. Um, but uh, uh, sand becomes sand because the rock's not strong enough to withstand whatever the pressures are on the rock. When I think about uh, a foolish man building his house on a sand, I think about a, a person relying on him, his own strength, his own wisdom to get through the stuff of life and to be able to handle the storms that come. Jesus says when those storms come, when those waters rise on the house that's built on the sand, what happens to the house? Kaplop. I don't know if that's the actual sound it makes, but the, it goes down. It, it, it's destroyed because a life built on anything but the wisdom of Christ uh, ends that way. I, uh, I think we're going to see that played out in the story that we're going to read here in Mark chapter 14. We're gonna watch uh, as two characters, Jesus and his follower, Peter, uh, make good moves and bad moves. We're gonna see the results that come from them. And uh, I hope that we will choose, like Jesus asked us to, to build our house on him as our rock and not on the sand which can be us, uh, as Peter does here in this story. Jesus is at the uh, point in his, his uh, experience here in the, in, the, in the best week ever where he's had dinner with his friends. You heard about that at least last week from Ryan. Uh, uh, they've, they've had communion. They've, they've broken bread. They've, they've changed the meaning of the Passover uh, Seder feast emblems uh, as a remembrance of Jesus now. Whenever you take of the bread and take of the cup, it's meant to remember his sacrifice. Uh, he's gone out to pray. He's gone to the Garden of Gethsemane with his friends. Uh, he's taken three of them especially to come and pray with him. Uh, how do those guys do? Anybody remember? They keep falling asleep. It's like they're sitting through a boring movie or something. They just, you know, uh, and, uh, and uh, they, they just can't stay awake. But Jesus prays fervently uh, for his followers, for us. If you can uh, read that in John's gospel, you'll just see some of the, the heartfelt words that Jesus says there on that night. Uh, the prayer, prayer uh, time is, is interrupted by the arrival of one of the other disciples, a guy named Judas, and he walks up to Jesus and he gives him a kiss, and that just starts this whole series of events that ends up in the crucifixion of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The, the guards that are with him, Judas being his accuser, one of the witnesses against Jesus, 
and being paid uh, handsomely for it. Uh, it indicates who Jesus is. The guards move in to get him. Remember what Peter does? In the story, Peter has, has taken a sword with him. And he, it's not really a sword. It's kind of like a, a fishing knife, a, a, a machete, a short one. And he takes it out of his robe, and he swings wildly in the dark. And he's not a very good uh, you know, uh, marksman with a sword, if that's even a thing. He, he's, he's not trained in, in fighting. And so he, he doesn't make a, an effective swing, but he does manage to cut off the ear of one of the guards that is trying to arrest Jesus. And this guy, Malchus, uh, you know, sans ear, is you know, in pain, and everybody's rushing to grab Peter. And Jesus, I'd, I'd love to be, have been there. Like, I'd love to have seen all of this that Jesus did. But uh, he just kind of stops everybody, reaches down, picks up what's been missing on the side of Malchus's head, and he puts it back on. Uh, an initial symbol or signal of what he's going to be doing over the next 24 hours, 12, 12 or so hours, uh, as he's persecuted over and over again. He's going to be turning the other cheek like he taught his followers to do. He's going to be restoring where everybody else is destroying. Well, they, they take him and they, they lead him away. He's going to go through five trials uh, in different courts. Uh, uh, he's going to end up in a, in a, in a house of a, of a Roman leader named Pilate. And eventually Pilate, in the early morning hours, is going to uh, present Jesus with a, a thief, a guy named Barabbas, uh, and he's going to offer a prisoner exchange. You can either have Barabbas or you can have Jesus. And, and if you know the story, uh, the people yell for Barabbas. And when he says, what should I do with Jesus, they say, crucify him. Jesus is then taken uh, up to the, the place of the skull. He's hung on a cross until he dies. But it's in the first of those trials that we want to take our time today. He's taken initially from the Garden of Gethsemane to the house of a guy named Caiaphas. He's the high priest. Let's pick up there as we read. So they led Jesus to the high priest. We know from the other Gospels and even from Mark that his name is Caiaphas. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. Everybody say the word Sanhedrin. When you hear the word Sanhedrin, think this group of, of men, of leaders, chief priests, elders, and scribes. There were 70 of them in the Sanhedrin. And they were kind of like this, this junior senate. They weren't officially in power, but they were kind of the Jewish powerhouse or the power seat between Rome, which was the occupying governing authority, and, and the Jewish people themselves. They, they basically handled all of the religious uh, laws and customs of the Jewish faith, and they were also the, the political go-betweens uh, between their oppressors and, and, and the other people. Uh, they, were, they, were, they, were, they were the court. They were going to get together, and they were going to have a trial uh, for Jesus. It, it, it's worthy of noting they weren't supposed to be meeting at night. This was kind of a kangaroo court of sorts. This was uh, all off the books. Nothing was done by uh, their own rules. They were supposed to um, wait a day between their deliberations in a court case before they ruled. They, they did it in like an hour, okay? Uh, they, they didn't have all 70 of them there because, you know, as many as could make it made it, but, but, but they were supposed to have everybody there to weigh in on cases like this. They, they just broke every one of their own rules, uh, and it's why we see all of these trials as the mockeries that they are. Uh, it goes on and it says in verse 54 <clears throat> that Peter had followed him. So, uh, Peter cuts off a dude's ear, probably hides somewhere in the darkness of the Garden of Gethsemane. They take Jesus and Peter kind of skulks along, hiding from tree to tree, just trying to stay near Jesus. Peter was pretty high on, on his own abilities. Does everybody remember Peter from the stories of Scripture? Peter, Peter was always, you know, speak first, think later. <laughs> 
Peter was the guy who got out of the boat. Remember that? Hey, Jesus, if that's you, remember the, the, the big storm happened and the, the disciples were in the boat on this lake? If you don't remember that, that's a story from the, the, the Gospels of Jesus. And, and, and basically, Jesus comes out walking on the water and everybody else is cowering in fear and Peter says, hey, Lord, if that's you, let's dance. And he gets out of the boat. But Peter was bold like that. He had actually made a promise, we're gonna read it later in this sermon, that he would never deny Jesus. And so he's, he's making good on his word. He's following Jesus. I don't know what his plan is. I'd, I'd love to be inside the head of Peter at this time. I mean, he's already tried to free Jesus once, and Jesus put the ear back on the guy that he, you know, that he, he, he basically beat up for him. He's probably yelling, Jesus, run, and Jesus is reaching for Malchus's ear. He's like, this is not what I had in mind. I don't know if he's gonna try to break him out of this next place that Jesus ends up, but he follows him. He goes right into the courtyard of the high priest. He was sitting at the, at the fire with the guards. He was warming himself there. I mean, this is like, you know, you being, you know, uh, America's most wanted and you hanging out in the lobby of the FBI building. I mean, he, he's just, he's bold. Uh, but we're going to see that his boldness and courage have their limits in a little bit. Let's start with Jesus, though. Uh, we're going to see uh, as, as these two rocks, Peter being, I'm going to skip through some of these verses if you're up there doing the slides, but Peter he was known as the rock. Everybody remember that about Peter? That's how he got his name. Petra means rock. And Jesus said to Peter on the day that Peter said, you're the Christ, Jesus said to him, well, you're my rock, and on you I will build my church. But we also know that Jesus is the rock. He's the rock of our salvation, as the prophets spoke of in the Old Testament. But he's also referred to in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 as being the rock of those who follow him. See, in this story, that's where I got the whole tale of two rocks. We've got two rocks. We've got Peter, rock number one. We've got Jesus, rock number two. And we want to emulate Jesus and not Peter as trial and troubles come. If we can answer this question today then, uh, how do we as Christ followers deal with trouble? How do we as Christ followers deal with trouble? You're going to see that show up right here on the slides in just a second. Well, and I'll just tell you how we're going to deal with trouble. You guys see it up there? How do we deal with trouble? When trouble comes, uh, uh, there's certain ways that we should handle things. Seriously, you're not going to move on? Or... <laughs> All right. Well, here we go. I'll start reading from here if you've got your Bibles. Uh, I'm in Mark chapter 14. I'm going to start in verse 55. Here we go. Oh, there it is. I told you. Yeah. <laughs> no? Did everybody see it? It was there. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. That's why they'd all gathered at Caiaphas' house. Uh, but they, they found no good reasons. If you, if you were being charged with something back in those days, uh, they had very little in, in CSI type evidence. They didn't have microfibers or video surveillance or anything like that. And so if you were gonna be accused of something, you had to get at least two people to agree perfectly in their stories for an accusation to be able to be uh, you know, weighed in a court of law. Well, they were having a hard time finding anybody, first of all, to speak out against Jesus. Just a few days before, he'd come into, into town as a celebrated king and hero. He was, they, they gave him a parade, right? So they, they couldn't find people who would say bad things about him. And so they, they basically, scholars believe, started asking people, hey, if we gave you such and such money, just like they did with Judas, would you be willing to say these things in a court of law? Well, everybody lined up for that. Yeah, I'll make some money. But the people who were willing to do that weren't the sharpest tools in the shed, and they, they couldn't get them to agree in the things that they were saying about Jesus. Now, that's what the next verse tells us. In verse 56, it says, many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies didn't agree. It goes on and it says, 
Uh, some stood up and fault, uh, bore f- false witness against him. This was the story they told. Uh, they said, verse 58, we have heard him say in, in, in the times that he's taught, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another uh, not made by hands. Uh, and even about this, their testimony did not agree. Um, they're referring to a time that Jesus in John chapter 2, verse 19 said to his disciples, very early on in his times with them, hey, fellas, just so we're clear, uh, I'm not here to become the actual king of Israel. I'm not here to overthrow the Romans. In fact, uh, they're going to put this temple down. They're going to destroy this temple. And what, he's, what was he referring to? Himself. They're, I'm going to die. He told, he told his followers from the get-go, I'm here to die. I'm here to die so that mankind can live and be free from their sins. But listen, they're going to put this temple down, and in three days, I'm coming back. And that's what we know to be the resurrection day. Easter Sunday. So they had, uh, they had taken this, this teaching, this metaphor that Jesus had given, but they had interpreted it liberally. They thought Jesus was going to plot against the actual temple in Jerusalem and that he was going to try to destroy the, the, the worship center of the, the Jewish faith. And this would be a big deal for all people who worshiped in, in Judaism. That, that it would be a, a, a death sentence offense. And so that, that was the testimony. But even in about this, they couldn't get their testimony to agree. So Caiaphas is going to take things in his own hands. The high priest stands up in the midst of all of this, you know, uh, chicanery that is these false testimonies not agreeing. And he says, hey, Jesus, I'm talking to you straight up. He says, have you no answer to make? What do you have to say for yourself? What is it that these men testify against you? What he's trying to do is, is, well, he's, he's badgering the witness. He's trying to get the witness to react emotionally, Jesus, to react emotionally and say, yeah, I said those things. Just like on Law and Order, that's almost every episode of Law and Order ends. The guy in the stand, you know, incriminates himself because uh, Jack McCoy is just that good, right? Well, that's what Caiaphas is trying to do. He's trying to get Jesus to break and to say something that will incriminate him so that they can press these charges. In verse 61, we see that Jesus was having none of that. He just remained silent, and he made no answer. It's really interesting, if you look through these five trials that Jesus was in, he rarely speaks, and if he does speak, uh, whether it's Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or John telling the story, it's always well, with pinpoint accuracy. It's, it's always, it's, it's never wasted words. And I wonder, <laughs> in, in your life, and, and I know in mine, uh, how that would help in the times that I find myself in conflict or in trial or in trouble, in a wrestling match verbally with, with my, my wife Eleanor or with people that I disagree with on some other uh, plane, if, if I could just learn to say the right things at the right time in the right way, I think I could save myself all kinds of trouble. But here's the human condition. Here's what we do. We get accused of something, this thing goes into gear, and we won't stop until somehow, somewhere, we've won. Even if we know that we know that we know that the person who's bringing, whatever they're bringing to us is right, that we're guilty, we'll still engage our minds and our words in defense of ourselves, and we'll end up just spinning our tires in life and in relationships, because we can't keep this thing shut. James chapter 3 talks about our tongues. James says that uh, our, our tongues can glorify God in one minute and curse the creation, mankind, that he's made the next. It says that we can 
James says that we could set our, our worlds on fire <laughs> with our tongues. Our words uh, can bring grace and blessing and can bring ruin. And I think what Jesus embodies in his trials is just, hey, say the right thing, right time, the right way, and things will go better for you. Now, he's, he's not mute through the whole thing. <clears throat> if I can put the next slide up, it'll kind of be the summary. When, when trouble comes, no one to hold your tongue. No one to be quiet. But when trouble comes, no one to say what needs saying. That's the next thing we're going to learn. Know what to say and what needs to be said and when it needs to be said. And then say those things. Here's what it says <clears throat> in chapter uh, 14. The, the rest of the verse goes like this. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Now, now he's ratcheting it up. Instead of being kind of vague, hey, what do you got to say for yourself? Now he's coming with very direct, very specific accusations. And he's just trying to get a yes or no. He says to Jesus, hey, we've heard that you've said that you're the Messiah, that you're the Christ. Is that true? We, we've heard that you've implied that you're the son of the blessed. And, and he was being a good uh, Jewish high priest here. Uh, Jewish high priests were so uh, pious and so righteous and, and whatever that they wouldn't even say the word God, the, the Hebrew word Yahweh. Uh, they wouldn't even utter it. It was improper for them to use the name of God itself. And so they would always use synonyms, adjectives to describe him. And so that's why he says, do you think or do you, have you said that you're the son of the blessed one? It's a very direct accusation. Everybody in the room would probably think, well, he's not going to answer that one either. If, if, he won't, if he won't talk when he's asked to defend himself you know, on a lower level, he's certainly not going to you know, uh, uh, indicate himself in this way. Implicate, that's the word I was looking for. But Jesus, knowing that it was the right time, says this. He says, I am. Now stop right there. Where have you heard that in Scripture? Moses was this guy hanging out in the woods and all of a sudden the bush lights on fire and it's God himself. And God says, hey Moses, take your shoes off, you're on holy ground. And Moses says, who am I talking to? And God says, well, when you, when you tell him that we had this conversation, just tell him that I am that I am spoke to you. It's, it's, it's one of the best known or, or, or God's own description essentially of himself. He just says, I am. He's talking about his eternal existence his higher authority. Jesus says that. He says, I am. And you will see that, he goes on, he's going he's to beat them over their head with their own scrolls. He's going to use their Bible, their own scriptures against him. He says, and you will see me, the son of man. And he uses that title, son of man. It was, it was uh, well known to every Jew in that, that, that circle uh, that Daniel chapter 7 talks about this son of man who's going to come and judge the nation of Israel. And he says, that's me. He says, you will see this son of man. And then he goes to the book of Psalms. Uh, the book of Psalms in Psalm 110 talks about uh, uh, my Lord will sit next or will, will stand over. David says, my, well, I'm going to screw it up. But David says, my Lord says to my Lord, uh, sit at the right hand of the Father. And he's, he's using Psalm chapter 110 here as well. Daniel 7, Psalm 110, he says, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand. And God uses, or Jesus uses this word of God, of the powerful one. And I'll be coming with the clouds of heaven. <laughs> that last part is, is my favorite part of what Jesus has said there because he got prophetic. He started saying, yep, I am the Christ. Yep, I am the Son of Man. I am the Son of God. <clears throat> but just so you know, I'm coming back. 
And when I come back, I'm gonna be the judge. All y'all are standing in judgment over me right now, but there's a coming day where I'm gonna come and I'm gonna judge. And it's gonna be a little different story than what we're experiencing right now. Jesus chose this time to make it very clear to this ruling party that yeah, I am the son of God. He said the right thing at the right time in the right way. When it comes to the, the trials and troubles of our lives, it's what I hope for us, that we'll say the right thing at the right time in the right way. That, beyond that, that we'll be courageous in the right thing and in saying the right thing at the right time in the right way. In a little bit, we're gonna watch Peter cower under the pressure that he's under. Jesus, knowing that uh, his death is gonna be the result of his affirmation, uh, affirms it anyway. He's already prayed up. He knows that this is the will of the Father, not my will, but yours be done. And he's willing to do whatever God leads him to and to make sure that the truth about himself and about God is instilled regardless of the penalty that might await him. That's what it is to follow Christ with all of our hearts and all of our minds and all of our strengths. To follow him regardless of the consequence. To say what's true regardless of what it might cost us. You know, that that could work out really great in relationships. There's a lot of relationships here uh, where people have been unwilling to speak the truth into those relationships because they fear the consequence. They fear what might happen if I say what's really on my mind. What God wants from us is honesty, truth, truth and love. That that might be something that everybody needs to work on. Remember the love part. Some of us have no problem with the truth, but we're a little slow on the love. But that's what God wants. He wants honesty. He wants people who are uh, being told the truth in love to receive it honestly. I'm working on that. Anybody else? Sometimes I don't like hearing the truth. I don't like having to think that maybe I got stuff I need to change. Uh, but as I grow in my faith, as I grow in my, um, my willingness to humble myself before God and those that he chooses to bring into my life to speak truth, I'm the benefactor of hearing those things and becoming who God wants me to be. If I can put it this way, just kind of summarize this, this part of Jesus' trial. Here, here's the deal. Uh, let, let's just call it the Goldilocks rules, of, Goldilocks rules of communication in trouble, all right? If you find yourself in trouble, in conflict, go to Goldilocks. Anybody know the story? Goldilocks goes to the house of these bears, weird, right away, right? Bears have a house, strange. Uh, but she goes to this house of the bears, and remember, there's porridge, and there's some that's too cold, and there's some that's too hot, and then there's some that's what? And then there's chairs, and there's one that's too uh, big, and there's one that's too small, and there's one that's... And then she goes to take a nap, and there's a bed that's too hard, and there's a bed that's too soft, and then there's one that's... Yeah, okay. Good, you read the book. Just remember this. When it comes to your communication in the midst of trial, (laughs) there is such a thing as saying too much. Some of you, that is your Achilles heel in relationship. Your mouth is going before your brain gets in the room, okay? Learn from Jesus. Learn to control your tongue, to choose the words that you say. I can't tell you how many times I've sat in counseling situations where i talked for two or three hours with a couple or with some other people in conflict or whatever the situation, and then <clears throat> almost done, getting ready to pray. A pastor can't wait for that that ending moment where things are kind of peaceful and tranquil and we get to pray and then we can go build on what we've accomplished in these, these hours together. And I can't tell you how many times one of the spouses or one of the people in the conflict says, you know what, I just got one more thing. Oh, 
I just want to leave the room. No, you don't. You don't have one more thing. Not right now. Because we just got this to here. And your one more thing is going to go, and it's going to make it bad again. Sorry, front row. If you're the person who's always bringing up the one more thing, learn to shut your mouth, please, for the glory of God and the sake of your relationships. So when trouble comes, remember, it's very possible that you say too much. We don't want that. Let me go to the other side. When trouble comes, it's very possible that you say too little. You're not willing to say the truth. You're not willing to speak what God wants you to speak like Jesus did here in this situation. And some of you are like, well, Mark, you told me not to talk. I didn't say never talk. I said be willing to say what needs to be said. Because listen, if you're one of those people who just clams up, you might think I'm being meek. No, you're probably being passive aggressive. You're probably trying to control the situation by not speaking to the situation. And so somewhere in the middle of not saying anything and of saying too much is just right. The right thing at the right time said the right way so that this trouble can find peace and so that this relationship can move forward. Now, with just a few minutes I have left, let me talk to you about, oh yeah, when trouble comes, no one to say what needs saying. Let me talk to you about Peter. And, and, and in Peter's story, uh, we're gonna find out that Peter <laughs> basically is gonna teach us that when trouble comes, um, we need to be sure not to depend on ourselves alone. When trouble comes, if you can put that slide up there for me, we need to, yeah, there, we need not to depend on ourselves alone. Everybody, th- this is probably the story you're most familiar with. If you grew up in church, you heard about Peter and him denying Christ three times. Let's just read it together, and I'll let you go home. The high priest, when he heard this, uh, tears his garments, and he says, what, what further witnesses do we need? He goes on, and he says, you have heard this as blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving of death. And so there in that courtyard, some began to spit on him and cover his face uh, with, a, with, a, with a, a shirt or a towel or a, or a blanket, and they started punching him in the face and saying to him, prophesy. So ironic, because he had just got done prophesying. He says, I'm the son of man. I'm going to come on the clouds. I'm going to judge you all. How much more prophecy do you guys want? Uh, But they were basically uh, uh, playing off an uh, an Old Testament belief that if the Messiah comes, he'll be able to be all-seeing. And even if you cover his eyes, he'll be able to know what's going on. So they were punching him in the face and saying, if you're the Messiah, you know who hit you. Prophesy. Tell me who that was. I mean, these guys just lined up. And all the, the months and perhaps years of anger that they'd had towards this carpenter from Nazareth just got borne out as they swung again and again at the face of our Savior. They brought the guards over. They got tired. They brought the guards over and let them have some blows. Let ha- hey, get some shots in here, fellas. And the Bible goes on to say uh, that uh, uh, Peter was there in the midst of all of this. Verse 66 as Peter was below in the courtyard, uh, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And he was standing by that fire so the light would reflect on his face. She kind of looks over at him, and this is what she says. Uh, she saw him as he was warming himself. So she looked at him and she said, hey, you're one of those guys that was with this dude that they're beating up upstairs. You're one of those guys. And Peter plays dumb. Peter denies it, and he says, I don't know or, or, I don't know or understand what you mean. There's words coming out of your face right now, but they aren't making sense to me. This is very puzzling. He's, he's just playing ignorant. He's playing dumb. 
Uh, he, yeah, he's already going against his promise. We'll see what his promise was here in a second. But he, he, he skulks away to the gateway. He moves away from the fire, hoping that no one else will recognize him. If I can get away from the light source, maybe they'll leave me alone. Uh, and, and, and it's that, that time that he hears the rooster crow. If you don't know the story, this is part of what Jesus had prophesied about Peter that very evening, uh, earlier in Mark chapter 14, verse 29. Uh, Peter and, and the other disciples had heard Jesus say, now is my hour, it's my time. And uh, you guys are going to scatter. You're going to leave me. And Peter, again, being the spokesman for the group, says, even though they all leave, and he points at all the other disciples and looks at them derisively, he says, even everybody else scatters, I will never, I'm never going to go away. And Jesus says to Peter these words, he says, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, before it crows twice, you will deny me three times. Roosters were uh, apparently uh, um, trained, or it was their custom to, to crow around 1 a.m. Uh, back in those days, at, at around 2.30 a.m., at around 3 or 4 a.m., and then they'd really go off when the sun came up. Uh, but, but there was this, you know, this, you can almost set your clocks by it. That's why Jesus mentioned it. Uh, the rooster's going to crow here in the middle of the night. And before it crows twice, you're going to have denied me three times. Here's, here's Peter's response. Uh, Peter the rock says to Jesus, uh, next verse, please. Yeah, uh, emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Peter's like, no way. That rooster can crow his head off. I'm not going to deny you once. And then all the other disciples were like, yeah, we're with Pete. Well, they've already left. Peter made it to the courtyard. Good on him. But now, when faced with the prospect, and, and here, here's what you've got to know. He's, he's listening or perhaps even seeing what's going on in the trial of Jesus. He's watching as one after another these guys are taking shots on him. And all of the courage that he came in there with, he's like, whoa, if I am identified with him, I'm going to get the same. He's thinking, whoa, maybe, maybe this isn't the, the battlefield that I want to fight on. So he denies the first time that he knows Jesus and the rooster crows. The servant Gaul uh, says in, in verse 69 of, of that chapter, came and uh, saw him again and, and said to these bystanders, not even to him directly, but says, hey, you know what? Psst, hey, that guy, I totally know him. He's totally with Jesus. And Peter hears uh, her saying this, and it says uh, here in Matthew 14, or Mark 14, 70, it says uh, that he denied it again, even after overhearing a conversation. And then after a little while, the bystanders that this girl was talking to says, you know what, I think she's right. And they walk up to Peter, and they, they're standing around him. They're, maybe they start a conversation with him just to see how he talks, and they realize that he's from Galilee by his accent. That's why it says here, uh, certainly you're a one of them, for you are a Galilean. It was well known that Jesus had gotten most of his followers from the northern part of Israel, a region called Galilee, and they had a, apparently a strong accent. Like if you're from Alabama and you're in the United States, you're from the south. What's up, yo? Or, or if you're from New York, let's go with those. Have you ever met someone who's like, you know, born and bred Brooklyn? They talk funny, right? Don't, not to them, but, to, but, you know, the rest of us were like, you're from Brooklyn. Or where I grew up, in Boston, my name was Mac, because there's no R's in Boston, all right? You park the car, and you go get Mac, and we go to Harvard Yard. All right, anyway. You can tell where someone's from from their accent. And that's what they were uh, guessing here with this Galilean. And, and, and here's where it gets really bad. Peter, this strong 
uh, lead out in front follower of Jesus Christ, he begins to evoke a, a curse. And this is really vague Greek. It could mean that he evokes a curse on himself. It could mean that he evokes a curse on those who are accusing him, a, a curse on you and me if I know that guy. Or it could mean that he's pointing to Jesus and he's saying, I curse that guy. I won't use the words that we use in our vernacular to say, you know, a curse on so-and-so. But that may be what Peter was doing. Just so that emphatically they could know, I'm, I'm not with him. Curse him. I'm not with him. He says, I don't know this man of whom you speak. In verse 72, it says, immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And that's when Pete remembered that Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And right there, big burly fisherman, you know, wearing the salt life hat. <laughs> he just starts crying. I mean, picture that. Picture the, the biggest, baddest dude you know. He's just got done cussing. He hears a bird make a noise, and he breaks down, loses it. If you go to this story in the book of Luke, Luke actually says that Jesus and Peter locked eyes. They gazed at each other. So picture Peter looking up from these three denials, hearing a rooster crow, catching the eyes of his Savior, his eyes puffy, his face beaten and bruised and bleeding. And Jesus looks at him. Peter looks at Jesus and he realized, oh, I did just what he said I'd do. He leaves, mournful, sorrowful, broken by the fact that he'd rely on himself. Later in the, in the story that Paul uh, weaves for the Corinthians, he, he tells the Corinthians this, that when we are weakest, God is at his strongest. When, when we find ourselves in grave, grave situation, God wants us to say, not my strength, but yours, God. You, you help me through this. But I'm amazed at how often in my life I get into those pickles and I say, I got this. I know what's best. I'll protect me. And I end up making a mess of my life and potentially dishonoring the God that I claim to follow. Let's not be too hard on Pete. Every one of us put in that same situation, we'd have a hard time. Can we all, can we all admit to that? Uh, I pray that this never happens, but that, that may happen in someone's life in here someday where you're having to make the choice between confessing and professing Jesus and your ties to him or suffering the consequences. Uh, in those situations, I pray that we'd learn from Peter and we'd stand up for what we believe, that we'd learn from Jesus and we'd say the right thing at the right time in the right way regardless of the consequences that would come to us. And I pray that we do that knowing that we have a God who is the protector and the restorer of all mankind. He's the protector. He's the one who is going to come in and ultimately uh, bring victory to everyone who stands with him. He, he guarantees that over and over in Scripture. When he comes on the clouds, here's the deal, people. When Jesus comes back, whether you and I are dead or still living, when Jesus comes back, if we professed his name, we go with him to eternity. We stand with the victor in this Eternal battle between good and evil. God is far and away the champion. 
And he is our champion, regardless of what happens to us in this life. Can you agree with me on that? That's the truth. But even if you blow it like Peter does, he's not just uh, the protector, he's the restorer. And this is the grace that we celebrate in song and in, in teaching around here all the time. Grace is sufficient for even us who would deny Christ. Even a Peter who fell from so high a lofty perch, I will never deny you. And in hours times, in an hour's time, uh, denies him three times. If you read to the end of the story of the Gospel of John, it says in that Gospel, chapter 21, that Jesus and Peter have another meeting. Uh, Jesus has risen from the grave. He's hung out for about 40 days, uh, just, you know, uh, visiting and showing himself as evidence of his resurrection to those who followed him. Uh, he appears one day on a beach. Uh, his disciples are out fishing, and they, they get this amazing catch. It's a great story. Read it. It's right in there, John 21. And then Peter comes up on the beach, and he realizes it's Jesus again, and you've got to know he's feeling a little awkward. The last time we talked, I told you I'd never deny you, and between that talk and now, I've done it. And they have this conversation over fish uh, sandwiches. Uh, <laughs> They basically, uh, Jesus asks them, hey, do you love me? And Peter says, yep. And he says, okay, then feed my sheep. And Jesus says, hey, Pete, do you love me? Pete's like, I thought we already covered this. Yeah, I love you. He says, all right, tend my lambs. Maybe they eat another couple bites, and Jesus says, hey, Pete, you love me? And Pete's like, Lord, you know that I do. And I think that's when it clicked. Oh, he had to ask me three times because I denied him three times. Ah. And Jesus says, all right, feed my sheep. And that was his restoration of the rock on which he would build his church. And that's his promise to us. It's our hope in him that no matter how often we fail him. I don't know if you're limping in here today because you've blown it again. Uh, or I don't know if you've had this one thing just standing in the way of you following or pursuing Christ on a deeper level because you've just never felt like you could be forgiven of it. Here's the deal. Look at me. God is the restorer of broken down people. He's the forgiver of your sins. He stands at the ready to make you whole and for you to move forward to become everything that he hopes you to be. You read the book of Acts. Peter did okay. He wasn't perfect, but he did okay. Why? Because he was strong? Because he was great? No, because he figured out, in my weakness, my Savior can be strong. May God teach us that. May he show us how to say the right things at the right time in the right way, and may we handle trouble planted firmly on the rock that is our Savior, Jesus Christ, so that when the storms and the waters rise, we stand firm. Amen? May God grant us that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this chance to open your word and to read uh, this, this tale of, of Christ and his courage, and even uh, the story of Peter and his, his denial. Uh, Lord, help us to learn how to handle tough things, how to uh, use our words right in situations that need them, how to, um, how to withstand the temptation to deny you or to, to lean into ourselves and our own understanding. Uh, help us with that, God. Help us to trust you. I don't know what's going on in the hearts and minds of people in this room. Everybody's got something, I'm sure, that needs you. Uh, that needs your guidance and your leadership in. Uh, so help us to look to you for the answers that we lack and to trust you as we follow you in them. Um, thanks for the people that are about to be baptized. Thanks for their faith. 
Uh, Lord, I pray that if there's anybody in here who doesn't know you yet, that they'd find faith in you soon and that we'd be uh, celebrating their choice, their good choice, uh, their good move in following you. Uh, we love you, Lord. Thanks for this day. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.